0: So in 1994, I'm going to take you back a little bit, I was a bachelor living alone in Gardena, California, in a one-room flat. On January 17, 1994, at about 4.30 in the morning, I was violently awakened when my flat started shaking uncontrollably. What I didn't know at the time is that the famous Northridge earthquake, which was a 6.7 on the Richter scale, and uh, was occurring just at that moment. This earthquake caused 57 deaths and over 9,000 injuries and caused 17 billion euro in damage. It was so large, its impact was felt as far away as Las Vegas, Nevada. That would be like an earthquake in Cork being felt all the way up in Derry. This was a big earthquake, and I was living very close to the epicenter. Now, the flat I was living in at the time was the only one on the ground floor. The rest of the ground floor was all covered parking, and all the rest of the flats were up above me on the second floor. The earthquake startled me from my sleep, and so I jumped out of bed and I ran to the exit. I wasn't thinking clearly, because I, I was just woken up violently, and I was still kind of half asleep. Uh, but in my subconscious mind, I thought, Being outside was safer than being squashed by all the flats above me. So I opened my front door and I ran outside. It was still dark and I could see the electricity transformers exploding into the night sky with great blue flashes. And so I I stood there for a few minutes just kind of in awe until I started to put things together. California had just had a massive earthquake. After a couple of minutes, I could hear the residents of the flats above me exiting their homes and asking their neighbors if they were okay. It was at this moment that I realized that I was standing outside in what I went to sleep in, which I'll just say was not street appropriate. (laughs) So there I was, standing outside in my night clothes, right, and realizing that my neighbors above me were starting to come down the stairs to see if I was okay. It suddenly dawned on me that I was exposed, so I quickly gathered myself together and ran back into my flat as fast as I could to get some more appropriate clothing. The point of this story is that wake-up calls are difficult, especially when you're sleeping deeply. Those wake-up calls can be jarring and disorienting. Have you ever stayed at a hotel and received a wake-up call? Those, those telephone rings are not the most soothing sound in the world. And when it starts ringing, you're violently pulled from your sleep, and maybe you're disoriented. You're not even sure where you are, and where's the phone? He couldn't find it because you're just so disoriented because it just pulled you right out of your sleep. Well, Paul is making the point here that it is the same with the church. When we get that wake-up call from God and He tries to get our attention, it can be disorienting, especially if we're in a deep spiritual sleep. In these verses today, Paul is encouraging us to wake up. Paul is urging us to realize that God is calling us to attention and that we have responsibilities to accomplish because the time is growing short. It's time for us to wake up, to be alert, to see clearly what's going on around us. Don't be like me and get caught outside, exposed, and disoriented in your nightclothes. In these verses, Paul is giving the church our wake-up call. When the time comes for Jesus to return, will we be jarred violently awake like I was in that earthquake? Or will we be disoriented and confused standing outside in our nightclothes? Or will we be ready and prepared? In verses 11 through 14, Paul is telling us that in light of the fact that Jesus will be coming back soon, we are to wake up, walk right, and wage war. So let's do this right, and let's look at the context before we dive into these verses. In verse 13, you'll remember that Jason preached on the verses about being subject to governmental authorities a few weeks ago. And then last week, Adam preached on the verses about fulfilling excuse me, fulfilling the law through love for one another. These are instructions from Paul about how a believer is supposed to act in the world. Now, to finish off this section, Paul gives us a wake-up call. Paul wants believers to realize their constant need to show love, especially considering that the time is short before Jesus will return. Another way to look at these verses in Romans 13 is that it opened with Paul telling us how we can be good citizens in verses 1 through 7, how we can be good neighbors in verses 8 through 10, and then ends with why we should do these things in verses 11 through 14, which we'll cover today. So as I stated earlier, these verses can be summed up into three sections, wake up, walk right, and wage war. Starting in verse 11, let's discuss the section of this text that urges us to wake up. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What is Paul referring to when he, uh, here when he says, you know the time? What time is he talking about? He, he's talking about the event to which all Christians are looking forward, the second coming of Christ. Paul is urging the church to wake up from our sleep because Jesus' return is nearer to us than when we first believed. It's our wake-up call. So what does Paul mean by that? That salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed? Salvation in this verse is a comprehensive term. This salvation encompasses your, your past justification, your present sanctification, and your future glorification. When Jesus comes back, that's when our salvation will be made complete. In verse 12, Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. By saying that the night is far gone, Paul is saying that the reign of evil is almost over. Thank God for that. By saying that the day is at hand, Paul is telling us that the day of the Lord is at hand because of everything Christ accomplished on the cross. The only thing left, at this point, is for him to return. Now, some of you might be wondering, like I did, why Paul would suggest over 2,000 years ago that the end of evil is almost over and that the day of the Lord is nearly upon us. I mean, Paul didn't know that history would last another 2,000 years when he penned these words. Paul certainly believed that the end was at hand and that the Lord's return was imminent any day. He lived his life even, as if the end would come within his lifetime. However, he never taught that the end would come in his lifetime, or even shortly thereafter. His argument here is that considering the certainty of Jesus' return and the fact that it could come soon because everything else had been accomplished at the cross, the church should be morally ready. Paul was certain that Christ would return, And he is urging the church, even us today, to be ready. Believers need to be vigilant and alert. We shouldn't be caught unaware. We need to wake up. Staying too long in a state of spiritual lethargy, where sin is tolerated and good works aren't pursued, can lead us to fall into a spiritual coma. And that can make us unresponsive to God. In Ephesians 5.14, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's time for us to wake up and arise from our spiritual coma and pursue Christ. Now, let's move on to the uh, walk right section of these verses, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 13. Paul says in verse 12 that the night is far gone and that the day is at hand. The night here refers to, obviously, the present evil time. And the day refers to the time of Christ's return. Believers in Paul's day and believers even now are still living in the night, characterized by Satan's evil work. You only have to watch the news or look around to see that this is true. In light of this fact... Paul urges us to cast off the works of, works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. I remember hearing stories about my wife's grandfather. And who He was an auctioneer, or as we call him in the United States, a, a real estate agent. When he would come home from work, he was usually wearing a nice suit and tie. And his granddaughters, including Joy, would want to play with him. But he would have to say, no, I need to change into my grubbies first which was his way of saying that he needed to change into less nice clothes that were more appropriate for play. Here, Paul is urging us to do the opposite, to cast off the less nice clothes, the works of darkness, and to put on the perfect clothes, the armor of light. Believers need to get rid of our evil deeds and clothe ourselves with the armor of right living, With great determination, we should be casting off and taking off and throwing away the things of our lives that will have no place in eternity. I wouldn't work on my car all day and then go to my wedding dressed in clothes that were filthy and covered in oil and grease. No, I would clean up and I would dress in clothing that was clean and appropriate for that formal occasion because it was an important day. Likewise, we should cast off the clothing of our past life and dress and clothing more appropriate for our new life in Christ. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, Paul talks about the armor of God, and he goes into more, more detail. I'm sure you've all read these verses. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. This armor represents all of the features that make up God's gift of justification by faith. We need to depend on God's strength and use every resource that He has given us to stand strong in this dark time. When Christ comes back, what will He find you wearing? Your night clothes or your day clothes? Then Paul urges believers in verse 13 to walk properly as in the daytime. We are to act as those who live in the daytime and refrain from the characteristics, or from the actions that are characteristic of the darkness. Paul then lists those characteristics of darkness. Now, this by no means is an exhaustive list, but it probably lists some of the sins that were commonplace in ancient Rome at the time. As I read them, I'm sure you'll see many similarities to the sins that our current world struggles with. First, Paul urges us not to take place in orgies and drunkenness. Some translations uh, say carousing and drunkenness. Some commentators even suggest that these two nouns should be taken together to suggest drunken revelries. Either way, it means drunken misbehavior. Next in this list is sexual immorality and sensuality. If wild parties and drunkenness describe the first pair of sins, then sexual sin describes the second set. Those who live in darkness are often enslaved by sexual sins of various kinds. And then the last pair of sins that Paul lists are quarreling and jealousy. Now, you might be thinking that those two don't seem to match up with the severity of the first two sets. But like Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount... Paul considers attitudes to be just as important as actions. Just as hatred leads to murder, so jealousy leads to quarreling and lust to adultery. When Jesus comes, he wants to find his people clean on the inside as well as the outside. He wants their actions and their attitudes to be kept in check. Now, I realize that this call runs counter to everything we see around us. Because of that, we need to adopt a radical mindset. This brings us to the wage war section in the text. In verse 14, Paul says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In verse 12, Paul talked about putting on the armor of light. How do we do that? The answer is that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We let Jesus take control of our life. We must make the deliberate and conscious choice to let Jesus take lordship over us so that all of our choices and our actions are completely under His control. We are meant to follow Jesus in every moment, saying yes to Him in all things. Part of letting Jesus have control over our life means avoiding our sinful desires and not indulging our flesh. This is war. We put on the armor of Jesus and we go to battle against our own flesh and against the sinful patterns of this world. As we know all too well, sinful actions and sinful attitudes all start with a single thought. A simple temptation suddenly becomes an opportunity to plan to sin. And now our sin is premeditated. But we must not indulge those thoughts. We need to go to battle against our own flesh and fight those sinful desires within ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. I'm reminded of Romans 8.13, where it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So let's get simple here. In practical terms, what does this look like? Let's go through a few different things. First, if if alcohol and drunkenness is a struggle for you, don't stock your liquor cabinet, right? Don't go to parties where you know that you'll be tempted. Seek help if you need it and join a support group to keep yourself accountable. If you have a problem with lust, for instance, remove the trigger that makes your mind go down that slippery slope. If certain apps or websites cause you to lust, delete those apps, and don't visit those websites. If pornography is a struggle, join an accountability group, or download the accountability apps that keep you from getting to those websites. If you're not married and sexual sin is a problem for you, don't put yourself in awkward situations where temptation is an issue. Go on group dates instead. Don't knowingly put yourself in situations where you could struggle. If quarreling is something you struggle with, avoid those situations where you might get tempted to get into arguments. The internet, and especially social media, seems to be a breeding ground for arguments, does it not? I can't scroll through any social media without seeing someone getting into a heated debate with someone else over differing views. But is this the right place to get into these kinds of arguments in, a, in such a public and open forum? I would say no. If you feel that you must engage in a debate, do it privately and speak the truth in love. Or better yet, do it in person so that the person you're speaking to knows your tone and your intentions. If the other person isn't willing to hear it, move on, and don't engage in toxic argumentativeness. Now, what about jealousy? If this is something you struggle with, I would say to work hard on being content with what you have and with who you are in Jesus. Jealousy usually rears its head when you're not content with yourself, and when you're not content with who you are in Jesus. If this describes you, then dig deeper into who God is and lean into that. I'll admit, sometimes I get jealous when I scroll through Facebook and I see friends of mine who are living their best life and seem to be on their ninth vacation this year. But I have to remember, I'm only seeing a facade. People don't usually post their struggles, and their trials. They're only posting their best moments. Besides that, I need to remember who I am in Jesus and be content with who I am and with what I have because it all belongs to God. We're just stewards of what God has given to us. So these are some practical steps that you can take if you're struggling with some of the works of darkness that Paul talks about in verse 13. We are in a battle It's time to cast off our night clothes and put on our day clothes. The problem with living here on Earth is that the things of Earth, which demand so much of our attention, can become totally absorbing. The Christian can begin to think like the unsaved, and then we start to adopt their philosophies, embrace their attitudes, and emulate their lifestyle. But we must be aware that our reality isn't down here on earth, it's up there in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and we are merely resident aliens here on earth. A believer should always remember that this isn't our home, and we should use the certainty of Christ's return as a simulant to do what pleases our Lord and King. I know many of you may have heard of St. Augustine. He's one of the most important early figures in the development of Western Christianity and was a major figure in bringing Christianity to dominance in the previously pagan Roman Empire. As a young man, Augustine's life was characterized by loose living and a search to life's basic answers—I'm sorry, basic questions. He would find and follow various philosophers and try to make sense of existence only to become disillusioned with their teachings. In all of his searching for meaning in the world, he would find none. And his propensity toward sin brought him no solace or comfort. One day, as he was walking through a garden, his heart was in distress because of his failure to live a good life. He wanted to end it all. He sat under a tree and in tears exclaimed, why not this hour an end to my depravity? Suddenly, he heard a voice saying, take and read, take and read. It sounded like a child's voice and so he started searching his brain, trying to remember any child's game where those words were used, but he could think of none. He decided to follow the instructions of the voice and grab the writings of Paul that he had near him he snatched it up and read silently the first passage that his eyes fell upon. He read Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. I'll read it again. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In Augustine's own words, he said, I neither wished nor needed to read further. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something light, the light of full certainty. And all the gloom of doubt vanished away. God spoke to Augustine out of his own word from Romans. The very text that we looked at today converted a troubled and sinful soul. Augustine was given his wake-up call from God in these verses. And he did wake up, began to walk right, and waged war on his sinful flesh. The rest is history. God, I'm sorry, I saw an article the other day that said uh, fire means early wake-up call for hotel guests. Around 2 a.m., a fire broke out at a hotel and guests were awakened by the fire alarm and they had to evacuate the hotel. I can only imagine how scary that wake-up call must have been. Their lives were threatened in that moment, and they needed to get out of the hotel and fast. Are you in that same situation? Are, Are you waiting for the fire to wake you up? God is calling us, and as Paul said, the day is nearly upon us. It's time to get going and get serious about this. Don't wait for judgment day. Don't waste your time on the empty pursuit of sinful activities. Instead, realize that a battle is raging and that the time is short. Don't be caught in your night clothes, the clothes of darkness. Instead, put on your day clothes. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ means to become more and more like him and to receive by faith all that he is for our daily living. We grow on the basis of the food that we eat. This is why God warns us not to make provisions for the flesh. If we feed the flesh, we will fail. But if we feed ourselves the nourishing things of the Spirit, we will succeed. It's time for us to wake up, walk right, and wage war. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to heed the wake-up call that Paul gives us today in these verses. Give us the strength and perseverance to wake up, to walk right, and to wage war against our own flesh. Give us the power by the Holy Spirit to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and become more and more like Him. Everything points to the fact that we live in the last days. Knowing that we are close to the end, let us wake up from our sleep. In this broken world of sin, we realize how easy it is to lose focus on Christ and to be drawn into the many sinful practices that are flooding our world. Keep us alert and awake to the knowledge that the night has almost gone and that the day for Christ's return is fast approaching. Help us to be a living sacrifice and a shining light in this dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.